Welcome to the Project Future podcast for people looking to launch and build their own amazing business with me, Rob Kerr. A few years ago, I asked myself, how can people considering starting a business be confident they are making the right decision and how can they improve their chances of success? The answer has become my book titled Project Future, Six Steps to Success as Your Own Boss. A Facebook group called the Project Future Club, where we support each other to launch and build our own amazing businesses. And this podcast, where every Tuesday, a business owner shares their story, including great tips about what to do and what not to do when launching or growing a business to empower you to make better decisions on your own journey. You'll find the show notes and transcripts at robkerr.co.uk. So in these uncertain times, if starting a business could be the right option for you and your family, read the book, join the Facebook group and enjoy the show. Now let's move on to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Project Future podcast. My guest this week is Sophia Matveiver, the founder of Tech for Non-Techies, who's on a mission to help people learn about tech so they can achieve what they want to from their careers. In this conversation, Sophia explains how she started by solving her own problem, what a lack of understanding between tech and business can lead to, the difference between a product metric and a business metric, how fundraising is a process of courting, the benefits of asking for advice, what a monthly newsletter can do for your business and how to structure it, how you'll be seen if you keep on turning up, how startups iterating is a good thing and why good investors should be open to this, how she's developed solutions for those with different needs aligned to the overall mission of her business. And finally, the negative impact of not understanding today's technology environment. Sophia's best advice is to have the confidence to say that you don't know things. Let's have a listen. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to the show. Hello, Rob. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Me too. And I'd love for you to tell us a, a bit about your background and what it is that you do today. I am uh, a serial entrepreneur and I am now running my second company called Tech for Non-Techies, where we help smart, non-technical professionals know enough about technology in order to build tech-enabled businesses, invest in them, or lead digital innovation at large companies. We have the Tech for Non-Techies podcast. We also have a bunch of online courses at techfornontechies.co. And also I teach my courses at various business schools, so London Business School, and literally just yesterday, Oxford confirmed. So I'm feeling really, really chuffed about that. Fantastic. And um, the way I ended up here is basically like so many entrepreneurs solving my own problem, Rob. So... You know, I'm sure, you know, the kind of people who listen, they're smart. That's why they, they're here and they have ambition and they want to create something. And I'm sure, like many of the audience, I was also looking at the world of entrepreneurship. And I was thinking, I really want to do something there. And it looks like tech entrepreneurship is the way to go. That's where the opportunity is. That's where the most interesting ideas are. And so essentially I started my career in the media, then I worked in private equity, then I got my MBA from Chicago Booth, which is one of the top business schools in the world. It's where Barack Obama was teaching before he went into politics. And it was when I was there that I had an idea for a tech startup, 
And essentially what I read is that business school gives you lots of business skills. They didn't teach me anything about technology. Like I didn't know just basic things like what's a tech stack and what's an API. And if your audience is thinking, what the hell is this jargon? That's fine. If you don't come from this digital first, you don't come from the tech industry, you're not going to know this jargon. And I found that as I started working on my first tech business, I literally just knew one side and I didn't even know how to speak to developers. Like I didn't understand the words that they were using. And also I didn't know how to set tasks and kind of how to measure KPIs because literally this whole new world, especially the world of product management, the world of development, it was completely new to me. And I saw that pretty much everything, all the advice that was popular at the time, was kind of coming out of Silicon Valley and coming out of Y Combinator. And essentially the mantra was, if you're a non-technical founder, you're always going to be sort of support staff to the tech genius. And the tech genius is always basically somebody like Mark Zuckerberg. So it's, you know, some kind (laughs) of Harvard or Stanford dropout who studied computer science. And then they started coding something in a dorm room or a garage. And then they created something. They got millions in funding. And then some business people came along and essentially just did their bidding to help them make money. But the business people were always the support staff. And I was like, but I've just paid $180,000 for my MBA. I don't want to be support staff. Absolutely. You know, like I want to do my own thing. I want to create something. I want to have vision. I want to lead a vision. I want to lead a team. And, you know, I believed the Silicon Valley mantra. I thought, okay, fine. Well, if you're telling me I have to learn to code, I'll just go and do that then as well. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And I think, you know, as a non-techie who's worked so many years in tech, it's it can be a very tricky place to be. But equally, it's not just all about the tech skills in order to you know thrive in that environment. And in many ways, as a small business owner now, every small business is technical in, in some way. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can absolutely see why you saw the need for this. And there's, there's absolutely no reason why founders or people with great business ideas should be subservient to, to, to those in tech. In many ways, that's the, for me, that's the, the, the wrong way around for the relationship if it's not a tech business. If it's a tech business, of course, you know, you have tech people at the forefront of it. If it's a business that relies on tech in order to get to market, then the, the tech is support, you know, in, in my eyes. And I'm, I'm sure that's how you see things as well. Well, you know, I'm just going to say something that my business school teacher told me. She said that unless your technology makes money, it's just an expensive hobby. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because I do think that for people who want to understand tech, get into tech entrepreneurship or invest in it, we kind of overvalue technical skills and then completely forget that actually the whole point of a business is a profit. I mean, this is why we're here, right? The way we'll make a profit is by solving our customers' problems. So either we're solving a pain point or we're giving them some kind of pleasure. But either way, it's a customer focus. And then essentially, if that customer likes your solution, if they like your product, they will give you money. And you have to then essentially pay your people and make a profit. Like, you know, that's a very simple business lesson there. 
But the reason why I'm bringing it up here is that even in a deep tech business, the point is it's a business. If you just want to do research and you want to, I don't know, you want to do AI research, go and do that at a university, get a PhD. That doesn't have a profit motive. Fantastic. But, you know, even the people, I don't know, the, the people running Google, they're very focused on profit. The people running Facebook, very focused on, on profit. This is why I actually think that it doesn't really matter what level of depth your technology has. You do need to have people who can speak tech and who can speak business. And what I saw when I was creating my first company is that I didn't really understand, well, not really, I didn't understand anything about technology um, by the time I already hired developers and raised money. So that was tricky. So I had to learn on the job how to be a non-technical founder and how to lead a team of developers, but also marketers and community managers. And, you know, there were some aspects that I understood really well, but I really had to learn about the technology and learning how to translate product goals to business goals. I had to do that on the job. But also I saw that the techies, they don't know anything about, you know, metrics like ROI, that's return on investment. And they shouldn't because that's not what their job is. That's not what they've been trained to do. But as a result, you end up with jargon on both sides. So you have the business people talking about ROIs and their spreadsheets, and then you have the tech people talking about their APIs, <laughs> and then nobody understands each other. <laughs> and then that basically means that even in the best case scenario, if they don't understand each other, there will be some distrust. And when you have distrust, you know, that's not... Going, that's not going to lead to a good team. And if you don't have a good team, you're not going to essentially have good outcomes. So this is, right now, Tech for Non-Techies is solving this problem for business people because those are the people that I know best. That's where I come from. I come from the you know, private equity, MBA, business school world. But I also honestly do see that there is a gap in the market for people who understand enough about business who can then go and tell the developers and say, look, this is how you translate what you are doing to business. This is why I'm also seeing that, say, the Technotechies podcast audience, some of them are actually developers because they want to understand how the business side thinks. Because if yep. you're going to be a chief technology officer or you're going to be a technical co-founder, you're not just writing code. You're writing code in order to help a business make a profit. Absolutely. And uh, I say it's uh, so many good points in there in terms of, you know, the, the, the dynamic between those two teams. And uh, I love how you refer to it as APIs and KPIs, you know, it's just uh, one, <laughs> exactly. one letter different. But yeah, so when you were developing NT, you were very much learning on the job and, as you say, solving your own problem in terms of what it needed as a, as a non-tech founder in a, in a tech space. Absolutely. And uh I also learned basically through many of my own mistakes. So, for example, I didn't know that product management was a job because, you know, when I graduated from undergrad, product management wasn't really a job that was being recruited heavily on campuses. So I went to Bristol University and then the University of Chicago, and that's where investment banks and management consultancies were recruiting. And so I knew all about that. You know, EY was coming to recruit us. Facebook 
I think was still a dorm room project when I was graduating. The <laughs> iPhone hadn't yet been invented. And so a lot of the jobs that actually exist in technology today, they either didn't exist or they were just, you know, in just a small handful of companies, probably in Silicon Valley. So, for example, in NT, we had a team of developers and then there, were, there was the business side and I was supposed to be kind of leading them together. And then I ended up, uh, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get feedback from my team on how I'm doing. And Rob, I don't know if you've ever done this, but oh my God, you really need a thick skin if you're going to go for this. <laughs> so I literally told everybody, I said, okay, team, I want you to give me feedback on how I'm doing and what I could be doing better. And especially technical team, what can I do? What am I doing wrong? And then what did I get? I got a presentation literally from the developers and the designer on all the things that I was doing wrong. And there were many things. And literally after this, I just, I wanted to hide and die. But one of the things they said was that we don't really understand where we're going. It doesn't seem like there is an aim and there is no product management whatsoever. And the thing is, it was completely true. There was no product management because I didn't know that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And when they said that there's no aim, I said, well, what do you mean? Our aim is growth. And they were like, no, 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 this is not how you have an aim. You have to have a product aim. And I was saying, well, you know, we've got a, we, we need to have this financial aim in order for us to raise our next amount of funding. And they said, no, that's a money aim. A money aim, that's a financial aim, that's a business aim, is not the same thing as a product aim. And essentially what I realized that I was doing is I was telling developers to reach financial aims, which is basically kind of like telling a tax accountant to go and speed up your upload times. Like it's just not going to work. So um, can I give you an example maybe that your audience would be able to understand? Please please do. I think it's it's, it's a fantastic example of of perception, effectively, uh, although you're looking to the same goal. You know, it's it's how you get there and how how that's communicated for the for the audience that you're listening to. So yes, please please do share an example. Thank you. So I think you know many of us are users of Facebook, and so let's take a product goal of Facebook. So let's let's say you're looking at your phone and you're opening the Facebook app. So the Facebook app on your phone is going to be a product. So Facebook would have lots and lots of products. You know, Messenger would be another product. But just imagine you're on on an iPhone and you open the Facebook app. That's the Facebook product. One of the product metrics that the Facebook people measure is how much time per day you spend in the Facebook app. So literally, how much time per day do you have it open on your phone when you're kind of looking at it or scrolling? So it's literally that metric is called time in app. And that's a product metric. Now, time in app doesn't actually tell you anything about how much money Facebook is going to make out of you because it's just time in app, you know, three minutes, five minutes. Then it is up to essentially the product managers, it's it's up to the business side to then monetize that time in app and turn that into a profit. Now, we all know how Facebook makes money. Facebook makes money by drawing you in, getting you to engage. So it's not just time in app, what are you doing when you're in there? So it's you scrolling through things, it's you revealing your preferences, it's you doing all of that engagement stuff. And then that way they learn lots about you. 
And when you're in the app, they show you advertising, but also they show you super relevant advertising because you've done so much to reveal your preferences. So then that time in app, which is a product metric, can become profit. But do you see how the gap, that, that essentially there is a gap between product and profit and that somebody has to think, okay, well, if we have you know somebody who is in our app for an hour per day, how are we going, what are we going to do with that hour? How are we going to turn that product metric into a business opportunity? Yep. This is why I actually think for aspiring non-technical founders, but also for, for investors, you have to really be able to understand what's a product metric and how does that relate to a business metric? And also understand that a product metric, you know, for a very early stage product, so for the first version of Facebook, they would have been measuring one set of product metrics. Now they will be measuring another set of product metrics. So essentially these things have to evolve just the way that you would expect, you know, maybe for a very early stage company, you're not measuring profit. You're literally just measuring revenue because you're probably putting more money in than you're taking out. But if your revenues are growing, then, okay, you can think, okay, our profits is tiny or non-existent, but at this level, just revenue growth is fine. And then at some point you'll think, okay, we now need to really emphasize profit rather than just revenue growth. So it's the same thing with products. There are product metrics that are really appropriate for a very early stage product. There are product metrics that are more appropriate for a later stage product. And none of this is complicated. And also, to be honest, none of it is technical, really. Like all of you can understand time in app. It's like, how long have you spent staring at Facebook? Um, yeah. Probably not something you want to admit to yourself. <laughs> but just understanding that these things are different and that you shouldn't go and tell tech people to go make you money equally, like you shouldn't tell the money people to go and build your tech. These are different things. They need to relate to each other, but they are fundamentally different things. Yeah, I love it. And you touched there on investors and communicating to investors. And I think a lot of what you've said so far really does link to communicating to an audience in a way that they'll understand it and in a way that you can achieve the result uh, that, that you want from that level of communication. So where you've gone through the investment cycle and, and indeed, I'm sure where you speak to your clients about investing, you know, how do you suggest it's best to to kind of go into that? Because it's a uh, you know, having been involved in, in this space myself relatively recently, it's a really tricky area in order to communicate to an investor why they should choose to work with you. So what would be your take on that? Well, so I'm going to address it from two sides. So first from the founder side, but then also from the investor side, because I've worked with both. So from the founder side, you know, fundraising, it is a process uh, of courting. So people need to get to know you. So there's a really good phrase that ask for advice, get money, ask for money, get advice in general. So if you're <laughs> building something and you know that you will want to raise money at some point, then start collecting people in your network who are relevant to the thing that you're doing. So if you're building a product, I don't know, for doctors, start finding people who've invested in medical technology before. So literally just start getting them into your network and then occasionally just reach out to them and say, I'm doing this thing and here is my question. You know, I'm at a crossroads. I'm thinking of either testing this avenue or testing this avenue. 
what do you suggest? And as you ask people, and as they give you feedback, they will actually kind of get drawn into your journey because, you know, the startup journey, it's an interesting journey. People want to be part of an interesting journey. We're all creatures that love stories. You know, this is why Disney is so popular. <laughs> so get people drawn into your story, get them to become participants. So they give you some advice. You maybe follow it, maybe you follow it, maybe you don't follow it, but then you follow up with them and you say, that thing you told me to do, well, I tried it or I tried something similar. Here's how it worked out. What do you think I should do next? What are your thoughts? And I'm not saying that, you know, these people are running your company. What I'm saying is then these people will become interested in being your advisors. Once they become interested in being your advisors, then converting them into being investors is actually not that difficult because they were already kind of bought into the story. The important thing here is that if this is what you're doing, make sure that these people actually do have money to invest because there are great advisors who maybe used to be angel investors, but are just not investing right now. And if that's the case, then you want to at least manage your expectations about who you're taking on that journey with you. But essentially, in the private market world, people want to get to know you and people want to get to trust you before they hand over the checks. Yes, sometimes you will get a sort of, you know, you'll get somebody who doesn't really know you that well who might sign a 20 grand check. And that's happened to me. But really, that shouldn't be that shouldn't be your strategy. It might happen, it might not. And also, you know, something like one of these random checks is never going to be something really that big. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that applies equally in when going through things like, uh, like crowdfunding platforms, because a lot of the time they, they won't even take you on unless they think you've got a very strong chance of, of being funded at the end of it. So if, if you're in that position where you're, you're looking for funding, it's not purely a case of you know going on a, a crowdfunding platform that that's all vetted before doing so so yeah i think the relationship aspect that you talk about there is so important and indeed to to start to show some momentum in terms of having uh, either people involved in the conversation or have committed funds before even going down that route which can be seen as you know as being quite a, a cold kind of purchase option but but there's a lot more to it isn't there in order to get to that stage well, you know, there's something that I do, which has really, really helped me. And for anybody who runs a business, I'll just recommend you do it and see what happens. So at the end of, no, actually, at the beginning of every single month, I write uh, a monthly update about how the business is doing. And I send it to the company's investors, advisors, and friends. And in it, the structure is always, this is what we've been up to last month. This is what we're going to be doing in the next month. These are some highlights. So maybe we've been in the press, maybe we've won a prize, you know, like in the next update for Tech Brand Techies, there will be that we'll be working with Oxford University. Yeah, you know, like some something yeah. impressive, basically. And then there's always a section at the end saying, and here are some ways you can help your favorite startup. That's what I always say. And in it, you basically put in about three to four different points and they need to be different points of different magnitude. So for example, I've actually used this method to raise money for my last company. So one of the points would be, I am currently raising a seed round for this company. This is our seed round. If you know anybody who is interested, here is a short teaser you could forward to them. So that's like a big ask. But remember, I said three or four. 
then you could have a couple of smaller ones because, you know, not everybody in your network is going to either want to invest or, you know, have the capacity to invest. But lots and lots of people want to help and they have the ability to help. So you could also say something like, also, I would like to speak to journalists or podcasters who are interested in topic X. You know, get yourself some free publicity. Maybe you'll meet somebody who wants to cover you. Also, that's a great way for you to expand your team. You could say, we're also looking for advisors who have experience in X, Y, Z. Expand your network, meet people. And essentially, if you send out this letter, you know, don't make it too formal, like make it like you're writing it because we're all bored of kind of formal sounding emails. You know, don't make it sound like it's coming from the tax man. Um, make it sound like it's coming from a friend. And if yep. you do this every month, then good things will happen. Then people will see that actually you are gaining traction, you are moving somewhere. But also what people will do is people will start helping you. So somebody might end up introducing you to an investor, somebody will introduce you to a journalist, somebody will introduce you to an advisor. And then that way, if you just do this every month, essentially your company will get the kind of traction and get the kind of social proof that you need to be really ready for a fundraise. And I do this for tech for techies now, even though we're not fundraising and I don't intend to raise for a while, but, or maybe not ever, I haven't decided yet, but it's just such a useful thing to do in terms of introductions, in terms of social proof, that I still do it. And if your listeners want to sign up and literally just see how I do it so they could copy my format, then they could just go to, I think the... Um, Link is technontechies.co forward slash monthly newsletter. And then they can just get that and literally just copy my format. And I tell all of my students, do this. If you ever want to have a business, literally just copy the format, do it once a month, send it to people you want to impress, but also send it to people who are friendly to you. So, yep. you know, some of your friends if they're working in interesting, impressive jobs, you know, they might be able to forward your email to their boss and say, look, my friend is doing this thing. They need some advisors. Maybe you could help. So this kind of business newsletter can really, really help you. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think it's so important. And as, as you know, you know, from, from my book, I think there's a whole chapter uh, called Review. And, and I think the Review chapter and reviewing your business is so vital. And as you say, even if you're not looking to fundraise, but just to take a step back and reflect on what the business has achieved, what the business has achieved during the month, and indeed to plan ahead and to commit to that publicly um, is, is such a great thing. And as you say, you know, putting in those call to action, even if they're quite subtle, um, you never know where it might lead. So, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a great thing to do. And, and thank you for sharing the approach because you know, when you when you start with a newsletter, you're thinking, oh, you know, what should I say? What should I put in there? But to, to break it down as you have, I think is is so sensible and and well structured and clear. So yeah, brilliant stuff. Thank you. I've actually I've just got the link. So the link is techfanontechies.co forward slash business dash newsletter. And literally, it doesn't matter what kind of business you're running. You could literally take what I'm doing as a template, and you know, my students have used it for all sorts of different businesses and it works for me. Now I'm using it for a second business. So literally just just do it and copy it and then tell me about your results. See what it gets you. <laughs> but just a, as a caveat, don't necessarily expect 
you know, stuff to rain down on you from newsletter one, because I think in general, people want to see that it's going, you know, for a few months, maybe like three or four months, they just want to see it's legitimate. Because I think people now are kind of used to somebody saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go and start this thing. And then, and then they kind of do it for a month and then they give up. So people want to kind of see that you keep on turning up. And once you've turned up like three to four times, then they'll, they'll see, okay, this person is serious because they're serious. I want to help them too. Yeah, fantastic. And it's the same with anything that you do, isn't it, in terms of building that momentum and, and repeatedly showing up. You know, like this this podcast goes live every Tuesday. And what, what are we, 40 episodes in now? So, you know, just doing that for 40 consecutive weeks, it, it gains credibility when I'm going and speaking to potential new guests that, you know, it's I'm serious about it. And I think that applies in so many different ways. So, but tell us a bit about the investor side. Uh, so I know we've, we've, we've spoken about the, the mindset and how that structure would go, you know, from a, from a founder. But what do the investors think and how, how do you see it from their point of view? So first of all, investors do actually need to learn some stuff about technology in order for them to be a good investor. So I don't think investors need to go to learn to code. Like that's not going to really help them, but they need to understand the basic concepts, like what's a tech stack, how are apps and sites get made? What is the process? What do companies in the early stages focus on? How does that translate to later stages? And the reason why that is, and especially, you know, in markets like the UK, but also maybe the East Coast of the US, a lot of investors, especially angel investors, come from traditional businesses. So they come from real estate or they come from banking. Maybe, for example, they come from law. So essentially, these are not digital industries. And the way traditional products get made is just completely different. And the biggest difference is, and you would know this as a project manager, Rob, is that essentially for a traditional project, you would have a pretty well-scoped-out business plan and you would have milestones and it wouldn't really be hugely iterative. You would be It's a kind of waterfall approach. Tech products, especially digital products, especially those that are made for users, they tend to be very iterative. So you make a small version, you test it amongst people, you see how it goes, and maybe something maybe the first direction is actually going to be not like the direction that you want it to go in and maybe you're going in something really different. Now, investors need to understand that this is normal. I'll give you an example. YouTube actually started as a video dating site. So <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I learned, I learned this recently. And if you think about it, it's kind of funny. Um, remember when, I, mean, I don't know if you remember this, but people used to, record a video of themselves saying you know this is me this is what i'm looking for these are my good bits this is what i'm into and then essentially they would these videos would get sent out to people and so the founders of youtube thought okay let's let's go and do this but online and people were doing so people did upload some videos but also what they actually end up doing is like they just end up uploading all sorts of other stuff which is what youtube yeah. is today right and so if YouTube had followed the traditional way of doing business, they would have been like, no, we are just doing this dating thing and that's it. And thank God they didn't because, you know, they built this massive business. Um, Absolutely. And this is what investors need to understand that just because a startup is 
pivoting or just because a startup is iterating, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. You need to understand fundamentally how to speak tech. And you also need to understand how product goals translate to business goals and that they are not the same thing. But you need to be able to ask the right questions. Because if you if you essentially take the same traditional mindset to digital products, in the best case scenario, you'll just be an annoying investor <laughs> that will, who will just annoy the founders <laughs> with stupid questions. In the worst case scenario, you'll just end up getting, you know, making really dumb investments because you actually have no, you have no idea what you're doing. And, you know, angel investing is already risky. So you might as well de-risk it by just learning a little bit. You know, don't spend your whole life, but just learning a little bit about how tech products get made. So then you can make good investors, uh, investments rather. Yeah, I love it. And I think, you know, the agile framework, as you, you've spoken about there, really, it, it it does mean that it allows you to be customer led. You can get to market quickly, um, but then also pivot quickly and, and move on and, and do something different. If you're finding something's not working or it's going to take too long to create the tech to, to kind of make it happen as well. So, yeah, there's there's very different ways of going about it. And and it, it, it can be tricky to to know all of the answers, especially, you know, while seeking investment and putting that business plan together, because until you're kind of in that environment and have actually gone public with it, um, it, it can be really tricky, as you say, to, in order to find the right answers at the first time. And I think having, having faith and confidence in the founder is almost more important than the actual content of the business plan. If you like it, it's knowing that they can, they will choose the right solution and will develop it in a way that um, is best rather than, you know, sticking to what was on paper six months ago, effectively. Well, absolutely. So, you know, there are so many products that actually started off as doing something completely different. So Slack, that was meant to be, that was created by a company that was making a, a game, a computer game. And that computer game wasn't working out, but they created this internal thing where they could speak to each other. And it turns out that actually people wanted to pay for Slack, but nobody wanted to use their computer game. So, <laughs> you know, what's what's the lesson here? The lesson here is that traditional business is fundamentally different from digital business. And it is customer-led, as you said. And yes, it is very, very unlikely that the idea as you see it in the first iteration is going to be exactly the way it's going to be later on. So I have actually had people who come from traditional angel invest, uh, traditional backgrounds rather, who want to get into angel investing. And with some of them, I actually think they shouldn't do it because their mindset is just not there. And if their mindset is very much like, well, we have a plan, you have, you must stick to the plan. And if you don't stick to the plan, then you are bad. If that's the way that somebody thinks, then investing in tech startups is not for them. So they should invest in, I don't know, the stock market or real estate or whatever. But, you know, if you can't get, if you can't switch into that mindset, then go and do something else. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and for, you know, for your business, tech for non-techies, clearly you, you deliver workshops, you deliver to universities. Who's your core customer? Who, is it working with those institutions or do you go into corporates or indeed work with, with, with solo entrepreneurs? You know, how, how does that work for you? Yeah, so it actually started uh, with a course called Tech for Non-Technical Founders because that's exactly what I am. So it's essentially 
teaching what I learned on the job and also what I learned when I was writing about tech for non-technical professionals in Forbes. So I had a Forbes column for three years where, where essentially I was learning, uh, where I was writing about what I was learning. And that became a course called Tech for Non-Technical Founders, which I started teaching at London Business School. And I'll be teaching uh, to the MBA students at Oxford very soon, which I'm very excited about. And now you can take it on techfornontechies.co. But what I noticed is that people were coming to study with the Tech for Non-Technical Founders course who actually had no intention of starting businesses, which is essentially what allowed Tech for Non-Techies to grow into working with investors and working with corporate innovators. So now there is a course, for example, called How to Speak Tech for Leaders. And that is the basics of technology and how that translates to business for people who are working in corporates. So for example, if you want to lead digital innovation, or maybe, so there's a client of mine that I started working with recently. Uh, he is working at a tech startup, Series B startup. And he works in procurement. So, you know, that's he's, he's never worked in a tech startup before. He doesn't really know much about technology, but he's very, very good at his job in procurement. But in order for him to do his job even better, to be able to advise the CEO, he needs to understand some aspects of tech. He doesn't need to completely retrain because his job is procurement. But he needs to understand, you know, things like what's a tech stack? What's an API? cloud computing, what on earth is all of this about? What is an agile process? You know, Rob, you know this from your background, but lots of people, they hear the word agile and they know it's something kind of, you know, cool and funky. <laughs> and that's what you <laughs> do. But what on earth is it? Yeah. And like, what's design thinking? You know, do I, what's thinking like a designer? Do you wear a beret and smoke a pipe? <laughs> and so <laughs> I do think that there's a lot of this random language around and and how to speak tech for leaders i teach people essentially what you need to understand in order to either work in a tech company or lead digital innovation and that course is actually scaling now across corporates because essentially everywhere is going through digital innovation so yep. everybody now needs to know this and um i heard bill gates say that he believes that you can't speak about technology without speaking about business. Equally, you cannot speak about business without speaking about technology. And obviously, Bill Gates has done very well. So let's listen to Bill. <laughs> Absolutely. He also has these calendar in five-minute segments, I understand, which is still something I'm aspiring to myself. Uh, <laughs> but no, procurement's a great example, I, th I think, you know, because if you're buying things and negotiating contracts, you absolutely need to be aware of, of of what it is and and be able to understand that jargon and and have that flexibility as well. So many many departments, as you say, everybody needs to be involved to some extent. You know, marketing, for example, that that there, there, there's different angles around it. I worked for a, a business years ago that the digital budget was owned by marketing. So there's there's very different ways of going about it. But yeah, procurement is an absolutely key one, and I can I can understand why they would come to you and would you know want that information in order to thrive in in that environment well you know i think this is actually a there's something that's much deeper in that is that i think most companies uh they will teach 
technology to their tech people. So, you know, if you're a developer, then there'll be a budget given to you to go and, I don't know, improve your skills in whatever you're doing. But what I see where the real gap in the market is, is say the HR people, you know, when whatever company you're working in, pretty much, you know, even your coffee shop has an app these days. So it is all of those other roles that are actually not technology. They don't understand, they, a lot of the time, they don't know these words. And they're kind of being forced to work in a, an organization going through digitalization. And they don't really understand what's happening. And their only option is basically go learn to code or take a product management course that's going to cost like six grand. And I don't think that that's the answer. But so I think it's it's procurement, but it's also the HR people. It's also the marketing people. Because, you know, if you're working in this kind of environment, everybody is going to be involved in making the company better in some way. So if only the tech people really understand what digital innovation is all about. But what about the HR people? Like the HR people also need to understand what another teams do. The marketing people yep. need to understand it. The lawyers need to understand it. I remember one of my clients was a lobbyist at one of the big tech firms. And uh, she took the tech from the technical founders course because at the time that's all that I had. And I remember I spoke to her and I said, you know, you're already working at one of the, you know, I'm not going to say which one, but it was one one of the really, really big ones. And um, And she said, well, I'm already in there, but my background is lobbying. So I know all about how to deal with Washington. Now, I need to understand holistically what this company does and how it all fits together. Whereas when I speak to somebody who is at that firm, they literally tell me about the product that they're developing or why this code matters or what this developer does. And then that means that I can't see the wood for the trees. And so I think this is another example, you know, this person's job is lobbying. This person's job is getting in front of politicians. But if they're going to be working in a big tech company, they need to understand how these products get built at a deep enough level in order to represent them in Washington, but also not so deep that they can actually still have time to do their job and, you know, occasionally get some sleep. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I, th- I think all of this comes down to making better decisions, doesn't it? And being empowered and knowledgeable enough not to be able to do the job yourself necessarily, but to be able to make better decisions and understand where it fits with you and and how you can thrive more in your role. So no, it's a fantastic point. So what's next for you? Where do you see the, the business developing? Well, I think the market opportunities honestly huge so my view and obviously this is not objective but my view is that the kind of literacy that I teach a tech non-tech use so this kind of literacy that you need basically speaking tech understanding how tech products get built it is just literacy today so it's essentially it's essentially the kind of thing that you need if you want to have a successful career and it doesn't matter what you want to do it doesn't matter whether you want to be a lawyer or a lobbyist or a marketer, or a journalist, I just think that in today's innovation economy, you cannot not know this stuff. And the way I like to explain it is, if you were illiterate, so if you couldn't read and you couldn't write, um, and you couldn't count, let's just put put that all in there, uh, you could still get a job. So you could, you know, 
or point. Maybe you could, I don't know, bake bread. There, there are things that you could do. You could still make money. But your earning potential is going to be severely depleted. You know, if you can't, if you're completely illiterate in a, a new word. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example. But I also do believe that if you don't understand the basics of tech, you're kind of putting yourself in that position. That essentially, it's just a skill. If you don't have this understanding, you won't be able to fully participate in the way the economy is right now, because almost every every company is now a tech company. So I do think that if you don't understand things like agile development, how tech products get made, what's design thinking, what developers actually do, if you don't understand some key words and how key tech words translate into key business concepts, your career is fundamentally going to be limited, which is why, yes, of course, I want to roll out what we're doing across more and more corporates, but my mission is actually much bigger. My mission is for people to learn these concepts so they can do whatever it is that they want in their careers. You know, the more people understand this stuff, um, the better jobs, the better opportunities and the more interesting lives that they're going to have, frankly. So I see the, the opportunity is huge and also my mission is huge. Yes, it is. But aren't, aren't the best missions? All the best missions are <laughs> are huge because otherwise they'd be too easy to achieve. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so I think it's I think it's going to be the work of a lifetime. Yeah, it's fantastic and and so valuable. As someone who's worked in a tech environment for many years as a non techie and have, have picked many of these things up, you know, kind of as I went along, I, I can see it being so vital uh, for somebody who's either in that environment or indeed looking to get into it. Um, in order to thrive because as you say almost every business now has some level of tech you know even my barber um, who's you know been a cash business for 30 odd years as you know after lockdown has now got um, an ipad with a with an app on there to sort of you know take payment uh, take card payments and things and and he'll have had to make a decision in terms of which one to go for and which one was the right one uh, so even if you're, you know, just a user of tech in that basis, a, a, a relatively simple level to take some payments, there's still a, a level of knowledge that's needed. So, and that's that's a really really basic example. But, but yeah, that's so so key uh, going forward. So, well, I wish you every success with your mission. Uh, and before we finish today, uh, there's four questions that I ask every guest on the show. So, mm-hmm. I'd love to know what the best piece of advice is you give for somebody thinking about starting a business today. The best piece of advice would be have the confidence to say you don't know things. <laughs> so the biggest mistake that I made, especially when it came to technology, I was thinking that, oh my God, I run this company, I run this tech business, and I've already raised money from investors. So I need to pretend that I have all the answers and that I know everything about technology. And honestly, I think that held me back because if I had been more open to saying, I don't know. Let me find a person who knows about this stuff and who can speak to me articulately about this. I would have had really good advisors from the start and I would have wasted less time essentially trying to like note down terms, nod kind of with a wise looking face and then actually go home and Google things. <laughs> so yep. have the confidence <laughs> to admit that you don't know things and that will allow you to ask the right people for help and get the right information. 
yeah i love it and it, it's so key and i don't think it's something that's come up on the show before so it's a it's a really good point and we we don't know everything uh there's always new things happening new things to learn um even this week i've, I've learned several new things this week you know and, and that that's just part of it and yeah we're, we're not expected to be perfect and uh, even though it can appear that way sometimes so yeah a really good point and what do you know now that you wish you knew back at the very start of your journey Oh God, so many things. <laughs> um, but I think it's the iteration that's the most important thing. I didn't realize just how iterative this entrepreneurial journey is. It's even more so when it comes to technology. So this is what we talked about. You remember the, the YouTube example that you start off creating one kind of thing and then you release it and actually you end up going in a different direction. Yeah. I didn't realize just how much things would change and just how normal it is. And I think right at the beginning, I was very nervous about things changing because I thought, well, they are not going to plan. But that's because maybe like a lot of your audience, I came from a traditional background. So I had to really kind of fight against myself in order to understand that, no, now I'm in a rapidly iterative environment. Things are different here. It's a different world. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it's another reason not to keep things in your head for too long, isn't it? And and to go to market quickly, um, even if you've got an unfinished product or an unfinished idea, then get it out there and then just get that feedback and understand what the market thinks of something and what customers think of it. And then the idea will develop um, and it will get better and and indeed be something of value. Exactly. Get it out there, test it and see which direction it's going to go in. Yeah, fantastic. So is there a resource, uh, so a, a book, a podcast, uh, a blog, anything like that that you'd recommend, either in the tech space or, or elsewhere? Well, you know, I am going to have a shameless plug. I will say the Tech Fun and Techies podcast is going to teach your <laughs> the basics of tech. You know, it's a great free resource, so why not start learning that? Another podcast that I really love is the Pivot podcast. So it mainly focuses on the american tech industry so it's much more about the business of tech and it comes out every tuesday and friday and it's by a new york times tech columnist Kara swisher and an entrepreneur called scott galloway so tech fun and techies and pivot those are my podcast recommendations for your audience fantastic so is there a guest that you'd recommend for a future episode of the show well, you know, I've just mentioned Scott Galloway, and I don't agree with everything that he says, but he does have a lot of insights, and also he is very funny. So quite a lot of rude humor, but I like that kind of thing. Uh, so Scott Galloway is a professor of, I believe it's marketing at NYU, that's New York University, and uh, he started, I think, nine companies. Uh, wow. A lot of them have been digitally enabled, and... He's an insightful man. As I said, I don't agree with it, with everything, but even the stuff that I disagree with, I find it quite funny. So useful, informative, and entertaining. Brilliant. That sounds like a great guest. So, And just finally, if people want to know more about you, where should they go and what should they do? So they should go to the Technical Techies podcast and keep up with my social life and the business of tech. <laughs> um, there's the Technical Techies uh, website. So just go to techfulontechies.co, sign up to our newsletter where there's lots of stuff that you can learn from. Or if you're on Twitter, just find me on Twitter. It's Sophia Matveva at, uh, on Twitter. 
or Tech for Non-Techies on Instagram. And if you're a visual learner, there's lots of useful, visually uh, beautiful content on there, which is also going to turn uh, to teach you about technology. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. You've added tremendous value in the 45 minutes or so we've been on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I appreciate it was longer than usual. So let's get straight on to my top three takeaways. Firstly, the impact of not understanding technology in the wider environment today. To get a basic understanding of tech, you don't have to learn to write code, but you do need to understand how technology can be utilized to benefit your business and how your competitors are utilizing technology for the benefit of their customers. Much of what is available is now off the shelf and user-friendly, which wasn't the case even a few years ago. So take an action to look into this and make sure that it works for your business. My second takeaway is very different, that technology is there to help a business make a profit. If you're listening as a technical person, I think this point is absolutely key and will help you stand out from many others in your space. Not just showcasing what you can do, but being clear on the outcomes it has resulted in. It's the same with me as a project manager. The goal isn't delivering the project, it's delivering the business benefits the project enables. It's a key difference. Finally, Sophia's monthly newsletter update. I first worked on newsletter sharing updates with my project team nearly 15 years ago, and the value of this communication tool shouldn't be underestimated. Sophia's approach, highlighting what you've done, what you'll be doing, your highlights, and calls to action of how someone can help you, makes it so clear, and as the last point says, has that really important call to action. If you haven't done a newsletter before, why not give it a go and see what results you have after a few months? On next week's show, I speak with the success spark, Liz Hamlet, on seeing opportunity from change. I look forward to your company on Tuesday morning. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep launching and building those amazing businesses that give you satisfaction and balance.